You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. And turn your Bibles to the book of Jonah, chapter 4. The book of Jonah, chapter 4. We'll read the first four verses together. Jonah chapter 4. Actually, we'll pick up chapter 3, verse 10, and we'll read through 4, verse 4. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which He had declared He would bring upon them. And He did not do it. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And the Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? Let's pray together. Our Father, we come now to your word, and it is with great anticipation that we do so, because we believe that you have spoken in a book. And you have revealed your will, and this book knows us. And so we pray, Father, that your Spirit would guide us in truth and be our teacher and reveal and open up your Word to us that we might rightly apply it and live and understand your truth in order that we might glorify you. We commit this time to you now in Jesus' name. Amen. We get to this point in the book of Jonah, the end of chapter 3, the beginning of chapter 4, and there is this sense in which we kind of feel that the whole story could have ended at the end of chapter 3. Don't you get that? I mean, chapter 4 seems somewhat anticlimactic, and I just want you to imagine if chapter 4 had never been written, and if all we had was the first three chapters, and we read through this story, and we got to the end of chapter 3, we would say, that makes for a good story. The prophet was told to go somewhere and to do something, and he rebelled, but the Lord sort of chastened him, brought him back on path, and then the prophet went and did what the Lord had commanded him to do, and the city repented, and God spared the city, and it's a nice happy ending. Jonah went home, we can all go home. If Jonah, the book of Jonah had ended at the end of chapter 3, not only would we think that the story was complete, even though it's not, but Jonah would have gone down in history as the greatest prophet who had ever lived. Think about it. He would be known as the prophet who single-handedly, with one message, converted an entire city. And then modern evangelicalism, with their fascination with marketing and programs and everything, would have all types of Jonah merchandise. We would have Jonah seminars, how to reach your city for Christ, how to turn your city around for Christ. Come and learn the five principles of Jonah. And we would have principle one, do the will of God the first time so he doesn't disobey you. Principle number two, deal with those things that are eating you. You know, like Jonah was eaten by the fish and he had to deal with the fish. So principle number two is before you can be used by God, you have to deal with whatever's eating you. See, you know, I can make a lot of money doing stuff like that, silly, trivial stuff like that. And we could have, what would Jonah do, bracelets? And you could have 40 days of Jonah and the Jonah-driven life and the Jonah-driven church and reaching your city for Jonah the way, uh, the way, for Christ the way Jonah did. But instead we have chapter 4. And in chapter 4 we realize that Jonah was just a man just like you and I 
subject to the same temptation, subject to the same heart attitude, subject to the same trials, and really with a lot of the failings that you and I have. See, the real point of the book of Jonah is not chapter 3, not chapter 2. It wasn't the fish. We saw that. It wasn't the fish. It wasn't Jonah being preserved alive in the fish. The real point of the story was not even the conversion of Nineveh, though it's the greatest miracle in the book. That's really not the whole point of the book. The whole point of the book of Jonah has yet to be told. Because as we've gone through the book of Jonah, we have, we have seen Jonah and God and the Ninevites and the sailors and the fish, and we've seen everything that's happened to Jonah, but there's always this haunting sense that the one that God is really dealing with is not the sailors and not the fish and not the Ninevites. It's whom? It's Jonah. And you just can never get away from this sense that really in God's sight is Jonah. It starts out with just the Lord and Jonah. And this book is going to end the same way that it starts out. It ends with just God and Jonah together. God says to Jonah, go do this. Then in come to the, into the scene comes the sailors. And we see the sailors and their interaction with Jonah. Then in comes the fish. And we see the fish and its interaction with Jonah. And then in comes Nineveh. And we see Jonah, Jonah and Nineveh. And then the book ends the same way it starts. And that's in chapter 4 with God and Jonah. And really, friends, that is at the heart of the whole book. This is the issue of the whole book. This is the, the heart and soul. The whole point of the book has yet to be revealed to us. And it's in chapter 4. Because from our perspective, the story's been told and it seems all done. But from God's perspective, the story is not finished yet because there is this one huge problem that still has to be dealt with and His name is Jonah. Because Jonah has a heart issue that we see a glimmer of in chapter 1 but it really is beneath the surface, not visible, invisible to you and I, until we get to chapter 4, and then we realize, oh, there is a whole world of stuff that the Lord is dealing with in Jonah, and it all comes to the surface in chapter 4. So we begin Jonah chapter 4 this morning, and I'm going to remind you of the memorable, though you probably don't remember it, outline that I gave you at the, book of this, at the beginning of this book. In Jonah chapter 1, we see Jonah at sea, and we see Jonah as the rebellious prophet. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah is in the fish, and we see there Jonah the repentant prophet. In Jonah chapter 3, it's Jonah in Nineveh, reluctantly, so we called him the reluctant prophet. And then in Jonah chapter 4, we see Jonah as a resentful prophet. A rebellious prophet, then a repentant prophet, then a reluctant prophet, and then finally a very resentful prophet. So that's going to be our outline. I want you to keep that in mind. In Jonah chapter 4, Jonah is very, very resentful. He's so resentful, in fact, that he is carping at God. He's angry with God. And he tells God how angry he is. And you see the hard attitude manifest itself. And as I look at Jonah in Jonah chapter 4, I see a lot of myself there. The grace of God is manifested so amazingly, not just in salvation of the sailors, not just in the preservation of Jonah and the fish, and not just in the salvation of all the Ninevites, the grace of God is manifest in the fact that He doesn't destroy Jonah in chapter 4. You ever realize that? Here is a bitter, resentful, angry, selfish, arrogant, prideful, and the list could go on, man who has the audacity to argue with God over the justness of God's actions, and whether or not God should be gracious to one people and to not another. He has the pride and the arrogance and the audacity to actually argue with God and in His anger demand things of God. And you and I would just say, you know what, Jonah? I am done with you. Zap! 
over. You're gone. You're dust. We would annihilate him. But God is so gracious that even after all of this, after the episode at sea, after the scandalous rebellion in chapter 1, after the preservation of the fish, after what he did at Nineveh, that God would actually still, still deal with Jonah. And he does in chapter 4. Because Jonah takes center stage, and now God is doing heart surgery on Jonah. Because the old proverb, even though it's old, it's still true. The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And that's the heart of Jonah's problem. It's the problem of his heart. And God deals with that in chapter 4. Chapter 4 is a convicting problem. A convicting chapter. And I'll be honest with you, there is a very dark part of me that would that would wish that Jonah chapter 4 was not there at all. Because in chapters 1 through 3, there's a lot of things that we look at, that we observe, that we can sort of keep at arm's length. We can somewhat relate to the sailors in that, yeah, we experienced the salvation of God, but we were never pagan, heathen, idolaters like the sailors in chapter 1, and we really can't relate to them too much. We can learn some lessons from them, but it really doesn't deal with our heart. Then we get to chapter 3, and we might be able to relate to the Ninevites. And yeah, we understand what repentance is, and we understand how repentance comes about, what salvation like that is like, and that's a great thing, but we can sort of keep those things at arm's length. But in Jonah chapter 4, Jonah chapter 4, as I walk through the passage, as I've read it through, I find it's kind of like walking through a spiritual hall of mirrors. Everywhere I turn, I see a reflection of myself in some way. And as I read through chapter 4, I find myself doing this. Look at that idiot. What type of a fool would do something like? Yeah. I know what type of fool would do something like that. A fool like me. And every attitude that Jonah expresses in Jonah chapter 4, I can relate to even as a believer. And I hope that you find the same thing as you go through Jonah chapter 4. You're going to look at Jonah and at first you're going to laugh and then you're going to smirk and then you're going to say, I've been there. I've done that. I bought the t-shirt and the bag of chips and I got all the proof because that's me. That's a reflection of me. Jonah chapter 4 for me has been like walking through a hall of mirrors. Everywhere I turn, I see Jonah and I see something of Jim Osmond in Jonah. So here's the outline that we're going to have for the first four verses. It divides up really nice and neatly for us. In verse 1, we see Jonah's anger. Look at verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. In verses 2 and 3, we see Jonah's appeal. He prayed to the Lord and he said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Therefore, now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for death is better to me than life. And then in verse 4, we see God's answer. The Lord said, Do you have good reason to be angry? So verse 1, Jonah's anger, verses 2 and 3, Jonah's appeal, and verse 4, God's answer. Now, we're only going to have time this morning to deal with Jonah's anger, verse 1. And the fact that we're only going to get through one verse is enough to make some of you angry, hopefully only at me and not at God. But you'll see why, because I think there's a lot of depth just in Jonah chapter 4, verse 1, and how you and I can relate to that. So let's look at at Jonah's anger. Chapter 4, verse 1 says, it greatly displeased Jonah. What greatly displeased Jonah? The repentance of Nineveh greatly displeased Jonah. The fact that God relented of his calamity that he said he would bring upon the city of Nineveh, that greatly displeased Jonah. The fact that Nineveh was spared and not judged, that greatly displeased Jonah. The fact that God did not 
that God showed grace and mercy instead of justice and judgment to the city, that greatly displeased Jonah. And I'm sure there's part of Jonah, and you're going to see it next week in verses 2 and 3, there's part of Jonah that said, I didn't want to be the one to come and do this. And I'm even angry at God that He brought me into this mix. And now I have to go back to my fellow countrymen, and I have to face them, and I'm the guy that led to the salvation of a whole city of our enemies. And what's that going to do for my reputation in Gath Heifer? What's that going to do for my reputation in the land of Israel? Jonah was angry at God for sparing the city, for not judging the city, and for showing grace to the city. Jonah was angry at God that Nineveh repented and that God relented of the calamity they said he would bring upon the city. Now, let me ask you a question. Is anger ever right? Is anger ever right? Is it okay to be angry? Jesus got angry. So that's enough to tell me that there are types of anger and situations and things that you and I can legitimately and righteously be angry over. There is something called righteous indignation. And it is appropriate in certain situations, under certain circumstances, provided that we handle it rightly, to be angry about certain things. The problem with us is that we get angry over all the wrong things, traffic lights, stop signs, speed limits, other drivers, what building we meet in, building codes, building inspectors, inspectors, and the host of things going. We get mad at all the wrong things, and there are a ton of things that we should be really angry about that we're not. There are things that should anger us that don't. What should anger us? What should anger us is when God's truth is not proclaimed, when God's righteousness is not honored, when God's name is blasphemed, that should anger us. It should vex us when things, when righteousness is not done, when truth is not honored, when justice is not done. Those are the things that you and I should be angry about. We should be angry in the right ways and over the right things. We should be angry over God's name and never over our own. We should be angry for God's glory and not for our own. We should be angry over God's, God's purpose and His plan and not over our comforts and conveniences. So there are times when it is appropriate and right to be angry. Sin should anger us. Injustice should anger us. And unrighteousness should anger us. And you can be angry in those things and provided you don't do anything sinful in your anger, that anger is right. Now here's another question. Is anger at God ever right? It can be right to be angry. Is anger at God ever right? And the unqualified answer to that question, nobody's volunteering an answer because some of you suspect it's a trick question. The unqualified answer to that question is no. It is never right to be angry at God. And here's why. It's a very simple equation in your mind. The only type of right anger is a righteous indignation. It is impossible to be righteously angry at a completely righteous being whose ways are righteous whose doings are righteous whose purpose and plan and actions are always righteous you can't be righteously angry over a at a completely righteous being it's impossible you can only be unrighteously angry at a righteous being so is it ever possible to be angry at god and be right no it is always sinful Anger at God is always sinful because there's something at the heart of it, and we're going to get to that in just a second. There's something at the heart of it that is always sinful. So anger at God is never appropriate. It's never right. 
It says in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 1, but it greatly displeased Jonah and he became angry. There's an intentional contrast between the beginning of chapter 4 and the end of chapter 3. And it's a contrast. In fact, there's three things that are contrasted that you and I are intended to pick up on. The first contrast is the difference between Jonah's attitude toward Nineveh and God's attitude toward Nineveh. Those things are obviously opposite, aren't they? What was God's attitude toward Nineveh? God did not delight in the death of the wicked. He did not want to destroy that city. He wanted to show grace. He delights in showing mercy. He delights when the wicked repent. It delights Him to forgive sin. There's nothing more godlike. there's nothing more glorious than when God forgives sins. And when a sinner turns from his wicked ways, and God can save him. So what was God's attitude toward Nineveh? It was one of grace. Then look at Jonah. What was Jonah's attitude toward Nineveh? Jonah's attitude toward Nineveh was one that you and I can somewhat relate to. Because Nineveh was his enemy. It was the enemy of the nation of Israel and their people. Nineveh presented a threat. Nineveh was those uncircumcised, horrible Gentiles. They were outside the covenant of God, outside of God's mercy and grace, outside the nation of Israel, cut off from the life of God. They were distant from God. They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the true God. All they had was idols. And they were despised by the Israelites. And here was Jonah's God showing them mercy when Jonah thought they should be shown justice. They should get judgment. If there was any city on the face of the earth that deserved judgment, it was Nineveh. No city's wickedness paralleled Nineveh. No city's violence paralleled Nineveh. And nobody's hatred paralleled Jonah's when it came to the city of Nineveh. He despised them. And here's how I see a picture of myself in Jonah, and probably you too. You and I tend to think that we, if we were the king of the universe, would be far more gracious to people than God is. Is that not the truth? We often say to ourselves, why doesn't God elect everybody? Why doesn't God save everybody? Why is there a hell if God is a good God and a just God? Why does He let anybody perish if He's a loving God? If I were, and the assumption behind all of those questions is, if I were sitting on the throne of the universe, I would show far more grace than God does. And the reality is, no. Truth be told, you're just like Jonah, and God is just like God. He's far more gracious to people than you and I would be. We're more like the guy in the parable that we read at the beginning of the service, who found the man who owed him little, just a pittance, and throw them into prison because we are not that gracious. We're not that gracious at all. There's a contrast between the attitude of Jonah toward the city of Nineveh and the attitude of God toward the city of Nineveh. There's a second contrast, and that is between uh, Jonah's anger and God's anger. God was angry at the city of Nineveh, and Nineveh repented, and then God became happy. And as long as God was angry with Nineveh, Jonah was happy. But once the Lord became pleased with Nineveh, Jonah became angry. The king of Nineveh said, perhaps God will relent and turn away from his burning anger. And when God turned from his anger, Jonah picked it up. Then Jonah became angry. You have to know that you are in the wrong boat. When the things that please God anger you and the things that anger God please you. And that's where Jonah was at. The things that angered God, he was pleased with. As long as God was angry with Nineveh, Jonah was happy. And he would have been content to stay in Gath Heifer. Jonah would have been happy with that. But once the Lord was pleased, once the Lord was happy, Jonah was angry. A third intentional contrast is the difference between Jonah in chapter 2 and the Jonah in chapter 4. What was Jonah's attitude when he experienced salvation and grace in chapter 2? Do you remember what it was? It wasn't that long ago that we were in chapter 2. 
sinking down, the seaweed wrapping itself around his head, crushing down to the depths. And Jonah, as he is fainting, he calls out to the Lord and he cries and God rescues him through the fish from the depths of the sea, from drowning, preserves him alive inside the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. And what was Jonah's response? Chapter 2, verse 9. I will sacrifice to you a sacrifice of praise with thanksgiving, for salvation is of the Lord. What a joyous declaration. What a wonderful, pleasing, joyous, grateful, thankful attitude Jonah had at his own salvation. But then, when Nineveh gets saved, oh, what a change of attitude it is, is it not? Remember how how, uh, pleased you were with your own salvation when you got saved and God delivered you? I was walking around crying like a little schoolgirl who just won a beauty pageant. For a week after that, I was so emotionally wrecked over my own sin and the joy that God would save me. I couldn't hold it together for a week. I was so thankful. And now here I am a few years later, 20 years later. And I sometimes ask myself, am I as pleased or joyful over the salvation of others? And am I as anxious for the salvation of others as I was for myself? And the answer to that question is pathetically no. Pathetically, no. That's how I see Jonah. That's how I see myself in Jonah, I should say. I rejoice over the salvation of people, but not like I did over myself. And to be honest with you, I hear some people who get saved, and I think to myself, oh, I was hoping that person would would suffer. I know that sounds horrible, but there is something in me that just, I want justice to be done. And then I hear of somebody who gets saved, and I think to myself, but I... I wanted them to get justice, not grace. And don't lie to me and tell me you've never thought that to yourself. Osama bin Laden gets saved. If that's in the newspaper tomorrow morning, what would be your instant feeling? I would. And then I would have to remind myself justice was done at the cross. So justice has been done. And God is free to show mercy to whom he wants to show mercy. But I see a little bit of myself in Jonah, just in his anger. Now, what is it that causes anger at God when we do get angry? It would be, I think, a a crime to us to just simply observe that Jonah got angry and to say, okay, let's leave it at that and let's move on. But now let's ask ourselves, what is it behind anger when we are angry with God? What's behind it? What causes it? I cannot think of a single situation, a single circumstance, or a single example, and I've been giving a lot of thought to it this last week. I cannot think of a single example that doesn't boil back to this one issue, and this is at the heart of Jonah's anger. That God acted in a way that Jonah deemed as inappropriate. God acted in a way that Jonah did not appreciate or he did not understand. That was at the basis of it. God had not done what Jonah wanted him to do, which was to destroy Nineveh. And God had done what Jonah did not want him to do, which was to spare Nineveh. So God had acted in a way that Jonah did not appreciate. Or Jonah did not understand, and Jonah was angry over that. Every example of anger over God that I've ever encountered in my life, that I was able to think of, and even in my own life, all of them boiled down to that one issue. God acting in a way that I did not appreciate, or that I did not understand. And it sparks anger in my heart. Or it will spark anger in your heart. Jonah had done what God wanted him to do. And now God had not done what Jonah wanted him to do. And there was a disconnect there. Have you ever been in a place where you have made a deal with God? Lord, I'll do this if you do this, and you do this, and God doesn't do this. And you get angry. That's what had happened here. Jonah wanted God to destroy Nineveh, 
Jonah went. Jonah was obedient. He did what God wanted him to do. And God didn't do what Jonah wanted him to do, and he got angry about it. And behind Jonah's anger, and it's this way with you, and it's this way with me, behind Jonah's anger is the assumption that if I could put the man in the mirror on the throne of the universe, things would be much better. Because I would know better how to govern this universe. And I would know better how to dispose of my creatures. And I would be more wise and more prudent and more judicious and more gracious and more kind and better in all of my dealings than God has been with me. That's the assumption behind anger with God. That if we could get the man in the mirror on the throne of the universe, things would go a lot better. At least for us, they would. Right? Because I know better how to dispose of me. I know better what to do for me. I know better what to do for my people, for the church, for this country, for the world, for human history. Behind all anger with God is this one thing, that God does something that you don't like, you find it inappropriate, unappreciable, or ununderstandable, and then beyond that it is the assumption that if I could do it, I would do it better. God is not most loving. He's not most gracious. He's not most kind. He's not most good. He doesn't deal with everything according to my own good. That's the assumption behind the, the issue. And it, the opportunity for disappointment with God, it comes up in so many ways on so many fronts every single day. Do you have a family member, spouse, child, mother, father, brother, or sister that is unsaved and you want God to do something about it, but he hasn't done that yet? And he's acted in a way that seems inappropriate to you or you can't appreciate or you can't understand. And what does that do for you? You can get angry with God. And I've met people who are angry with God for those reasons. How do you respond when everything comes crashing down around your ears and business is slow and the Christmas bonus when it comes in, if it comes in, wasn't what you were hoped, uh, hoped it would be or wasn't what you were told it would be or wasn't what you anticipated and all of a sudden you got to tighten up your belt because things aren't there that should have been? Or when God takes somebody from you who is a, a loved spouse or a loved child or a relative or a friend and death comes in and a disease and you get you ask the question why and there's no answer from heaven as to why this might happen. What does that do for you? Do you get angry? And you get married and you thought it was going to be just a bed of roses and a bowl of cherries and everything was going to go well and life was going to be a perpetual vacation and everything was going to be easy and it was just going to be a, a blissful uh, 1950s style Life where everything was the smell of freshly baked apple pie and there were no problems in the universe. And then you get married and you find out, hey, this is not the person I dated. For some reason, I'm sleeping in bed with a different person than the one I went to the movies with just several months ago. And things are not what you anticipated. And then you have kids and it's a whole lot of work and sacrifice. And there are deadlines to be met and responsibilities to be made and to be fulfilled. And that's not as easy as you thought it would be. Then your kids get married and they leave home. And you're left with just that same spouse that you had 25 years ago when you got married and were disappointed back then. What do you do? You get angry at God? We typically get angry at God when things are... He does not act in a way that we deem appropriate or that we can't appreciate or that we can't understand. And at the heart of it all is my own pride and my own arrogance and the assumption that if I were given the choice and I were given the opportunity, I could govern the universe better than God governs the universe. Charles Darwin lost a daughter when she was nine years old. And he turned away from the Lord 
and designed a religion to try and explain how everything got the way that it is without God. And you know why he did that? Because he and his puny, finite mind could not reconcile the existence of a God with the existence of suffering in the world. And in his mind, if there was a God, certainly he would not govern things this way. And Charles Darwin turned away from God and pursued a course of suppressing the truth and unrighteousness so that he could explain away the things which clearly demonstrate a creator in terms without a creator. Charles Templeton, have you heard that name? Was an evangelist with Billy Graham? He turned away from God. Why? Because he could not reconcile the existence of pain and suffering in a world with God on the throne. So he said, there must not therefore be God. If there's pain and suffering, there must not therefore be God. And in the foolishness of their own hearts and their own minds, their minds were darkened because they refused to give God glory and look at it from a biblical perspective and say that death exists for this reason and sin exists because of uh, God allowed sin and so death exists because of sin and therefore a good and righteous God has dealt with sin and He will deal with sin. Instead, they just turned their back on God. Why? Because they got angry with God. Because God acted in a way that they deemed inappropriate or that they could not understand. Now, let me give you an example from my own life. Just so you don't think that I've never had struggled with this. And I've told this story before, but I want to emphasize the different elements of this story. When I went to Bible college, I originally went to Bible college with two mixed motives. One of them was to, to uh, finally woo and win a girl that I had been a pen pal with for about 18 months. And the other one was to study the Bible. And uh, about, uh, I'm going to say four weeks, about four weeks before Bible college started in that August, I got a Dear Jim letter in the mail with very explicit um, wording that said, any mutual expectations that we may have had uh, in coming to Bible school together and starting a relationship and a friendship and eventually working toward courtship, anything that might you might have suspected on that end or that I might have thought on that end, it's over because I got a boyfriend. And so just so you know, if you do come to Bible college, and I'm paraphrasing now, if you do come to Bible college, we will not be pursuing any kind of friendship. And you know what my initial reaction was? Anger. Why was I angry? Because I had put plans for my own life on hold so that I could go to Bible college. And I thought the least that God could do in reward me was to not let this plan fall apart. That, I thought, was a good quid pro quo agreement. Lord, I'll scratch your back by giving you a year of my life and doing your will and what I thought was good for your kingdom, and then you scratch my back by making sure that I get the beautiful girl in the end. Now, I did get a beautiful girl in the end from going to Bible college, but it wasn't the beautiful girl that I thought I was going to get. And I can edit this part out because I know this is going on uh, the Internet, but I, I will tell you, that am I ever thankful that God did not give me what I prayed for and what I wanted and what I asked for and what I expected. I thank God that He was gracious enough to not give me what I wanted. But I worked out the quid pro quo agreement with God. I'll do this. You do that. You should be pleased enough with me that I'm giving you this. And in return, you ought to give me that. So for about a week, I was in a funk. I wrote off going to Bible college. I said, that's it. I'm done. I don't need Bible college. I'm not going to do that. And for a week, I stewed in that and, and went back and forth and wrote it off and then said I would do it again and wrote it off. And finally, I came to the realization that God does not deal with me on a quid pro quo basis. God does not deal with me on a you scratch my back, I'll scratch your back basis. How does God deal with me? He expects my obedience 
And he is not obligated to do anything gracious for me in return, though he does. He always does. And so I went to Bible college anyway. And in the end, I'm very grateful that the Lord did that. But I was saying, now listen, I could give you example after example after example of temporary insanity from my own life where I saw God not do something that I wanted Him to do or expected Him to do, and I got angry and I got bitter with God. And always behind it is this one thing. He acts in a way that I cannot appreciate or that I do not understand, and so I get angry. And behind that is the prideful, arrogant, self-serving, selfish, self-centered assumption that if I were on the throne, I could and I would do a better job of disposing of my circumstances than he has. And that's a lie. So that's the cause of anger with God. Now, how do you and I deal with anger with God? It's the same way you and I deal with any other sin in our lives. You have to recognize that it's sin. You have to recognize it for the prideful, selfish, self-centered, arrogant attitude that it is. And you've got to despise it. And you have to confess it as sin. And then look at God, uh, Jonah's answer to God, which we'll look at next week. Look at Jonah, or God's answer to Jonah, I should say. Look at God's answer to Jonah. Do you have a right to be angry? Piercing question, isn't it? And the answer to that is always no. I have no right to be angry. I cannot object to what you have done. I cannot say that what you have done is ultimately not for my good or for your glory. I have no right to my anger. I have no right to even be disappointed in what he has done, even if it's not what I expected. So I have to recognize it as sin, call it sin, identify it as sin, and realize that I have no right to that anger. And I have to begin to despise it. The second thing you do in dealing with sin, not only confessing it and recognizing it for what it is, and this is the same way, like I said, you deal with any sin, you've got to attack it with the Scripture. And you have to allow the Bible to inform your understanding. And you have to go back and say, hold on a second, I have believed a lie. I have believed that I would be a better God than God. And I and my pride have believed all kinds of lies about my circumstances, about who God is, and about God's plan. And you have to begin to think, make yourself think biblically about the issue so that you're informed by truth. And then the third thing you have to do is you have to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God because He resists the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. You have to humble yourself and say, God, I am not the King of the universe. and You can do with me whatever you please. Though you may slay me, yet I will trust in you. That was Job. Though he slay me, I will trust in him. And you have to humble yourself and get rid of the pride and lay aside the pride and place yourself under the good and gracious and sovereign hand of God. So you recognize it as sin. You inform your mind and your spirit and your soul with the truth of Scripture. And then you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. That's how you deal with anger. I don't know if Jonah ever did that or not. I don't know because the story ends so abruptly at the end of chapter 4. I don't know if Jonah ever dealt with his anger biblically or not. But you know how to deal with your anger biblically. Can you see yourself in Jonah and his anger? We've looked at Jonah's anger. Next week we'll look at Jonah's appeal to God and then God's answer. And if you think Jonah was a reflection of you, boy, we just got started. Wait till you see what he does next week with God, thinking in his own wisdom how good he is. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the grace of Christ. Thank you for your word. Lord, there are times when we read your word and we have to confess that we do not know this book nearly as well as this book knows us. So we thank you, Father, that you pierce our hearts, that you try the hearts of the sons of men, 
and that you know us inside and out, and you and you alone are able to change us. And we pray, O oh God, that you would change our hearts and conform them into the image of Christ. Lord, may we not get angry with you over anything, but constantly remember that we are but dust. We are children of dust, feeble and frail. And we thank you that in our misunderstanding, in our rebellion, that you do not you do not destroy us, that you do not punish us, that you do not impute to us our iniquity, but that you have dealt with us on the cross. And we thank you that you are gracious and loving and kind even to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.